How is everybody? All right. Amazing. Um, <laughs> that was facetious. That's what, that's what that was. Everybody doing okay for real, right? Okay, so just for a second, because everyone's so excited. Um, there's, a, there's a rock guy. His name's w, uh, Andrew WK. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Andrew WK. He wears all white, and he's just crazy, and all of his music's about partying, right? Not like partying, like getting wasted and like doing stupid stuff, but just like life's a party. And he was interviewed one time on Larry King Live, and Larry King's like, why are you excited and happy all the time? And his answer was, we're breathing right now, right? So basically his point was the fact that we're alive is a thing we're celebrating. So we live in a nation that's wonderful where we can come and worship the way we want, and we're in this nice, like, heated room. And like, that's pretty cool, right? How is everybody? Awesome. Fantastic. Live in the greatest nation in the world. We're free. We're worshiping God together. We can come to church, be casual, study the Word of God. That's a pretty cool thing, right? Even it's at 9 o'clock in the morning, which really isn't that early. So, okay, cool. All right, now we can move on. We're in the book of Revelation, and we've been in it for a while, and we are in chapter 5 today. So we've been working through this little bit by little bit, kind of breaking it down in smaller chunks. And um, if you weren't here Chapter four was pretty interesting. We're starting to get into kind of the deep waters. We're starting to tread into the stuff that's a little bit more complicated, takes a little bit more work, a little bit more meditation and study and just kind of reflection. We're getting into some kind of more complicated stuff, all right? So if you weren't here last week, chapter four, we talked about the throne room of God. Now, if you've never heard the book of Revelation, it's the very last book of the Bible, and people tend to be very afraid of this book of the Bible, and there's, there's not any reason to be afraid of it. Again, it takes a little bit more work, but we can make it through this and we can understand it pretty well, okay? So last week, we had just got done covering the first three chapters, which is kind of the first part of Revelation. It kind of stands alone. The next big chunk we've just gotten into, and again, the throne room of God, John is kind of transported spiritually. There's a door that opens in heaven. John gets to go through this door and he sees kind of the command center of heaven where all the commands of God are made. And there's this, in chapter 11, it's very, very, I'm sorry, chapter four, which only has 11 verses, is very short, but it gives us this glimpse of the throne, these angels that are flying around the throne in close proximity to God, these 24 elders that are, that are seated around the throne on little mini thrones, and we get all of this imagery and all this beautiful symbolism that we kind of broke down a little bit last week. And we talked about the closer that we get to the throne, the closer we start to take on the attributes of the throne, what the throne means, and we start to look more like God and speak and think and act more like God and show mercy and love like God shows it, or at least closer to how God shows it when we're close to the throne, okay? This week, we're still in the throne room, okay? Chapter five, we're still in the throne room, but we're about to make a huge shift. We're about to start moving into future events, things that have not happened yet. And we're gonna to talk today about a scroll, rolled up piece of paper. And so John's gonna zoom into the throne again. He's gonna see that God is holding something in his hand. Now what this represents, and we'll get into this more in a minute, is it represents the future. It represents everything that is going to happen. And God is holding this and he's looking for someone else to hand this off to and to take care of it. So today here's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about that there's only one person that can hold the future, one person that is worth trusting the future with, okay? And so we're gonna talk about that 
in chapter five. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in, has everything I'm gonna say in it. Um, if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, if you click on the bottom button, services, and then sermon notes, everything is there. And if you have a Bible, we're in the very last book of the Bible. We are in chapter five. Again, it's a short chapter. We'll get through it pretty quick, but we're gonna hang out a little bit at the end. And I just wanna, I guess, give a warning or a preface. Uh, we're just gonna be real honest at the end, guys, and we're gonna have to just be real straightforward with each other. I expect you guys to be honest with me. I, I wanna be honest with you. And sometimes we just have to ask ourselves the hard questions. And so we're gonna do that a little bit at the end of the lesson, okay? Just so everyone can like have their seatbelts on and be ready for that. There's no seatbelts on your seat, but um, anyways. So let me pray and we will uh, get into this, okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We wanna thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us. God, Lord, we are blessed. God, we, we, even though life is not easy, Lord, you have provided for us, you have protected us, God. You've made a way for us to be here this morning. God, all joking aside, the fact that we have blood in our veins and air in our lungs, God, is reason enough to be happy and to celebrate you and to love you, God, and to thank you. Lord, God, speak to us today. God, please give us uh, insight. Open up our eyes and our ears. Lord, let us understand. And Lord, even more than understand, Lord, let us apply what we hear. God, we pray that you touch every church in our city, touch every nonprofit in our city, we pray that it's all about your kingdom, Lord, not about us, but about your kingdom, God. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John speaking, he's still in the throne room, okay? John says, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, typically when you study royalty, the right hand of a king symbolized power. So the fact that God is holding something in his right hand already showed a little bit of symbolism. Now, chapter five is still in the same room that chapter four is in. And as John focuses in, he gets hyper-focused, right? He's focusing in towards the throne he sees that in God's hand, he is holding this scroll. Now, the scroll had writing on both sides, which indicates there's a lot of information in there. It was also sealed, not once, but seven times, which showed that the information that was in there was highly protected and no one was able to look at it. No one had broken the seals. Now, here's where it gets really, really fun, guys. This is no ordinary scroll. The information in this scroll is the sealed order for the entire universe. Everything is contained in the scroll. This is the document for how humanity is going to end. This is the document that's gonna tell us how God is going to banish evil, how he's going to break down evil societies and cultures and governments. This is the document that tells us how the universe is going to be wiped away and a new perfect universe is going to be built. 
So opening the seven seals of this document, this scroll that we're going to talk about today, will unleash judgment on the godless and will reward the God-fearing. It's a pretty important scroll, and that's what we're talking about today. Here's what's neat. What we're going to start studying from next week on out is the scroll. Chapter 6 is going to be what is in his hand. So who is worthy to open such a scroll? John sees this mighty angel that asks the question, who can be good enough to open this scroll? And John was distraught because it said no body above the earth, heaven, no one in the earth, and no one below the earth, hell, no one in heaven or hell or earth can touch the scroll. They can't even look in it. And so John was distraught. The reason why he was distraught is John thought any hope of justice and righteousness was gone. You ever felt like that? You ever like watch the news and you're like, we are so messed up, right? How in the world is God going to turn this around? That's how John felt. He was distraught. He felt hopeless about the future. As he's weeping, right? Not just tearing up a little bit, he is weeping. One of the 24 elders that's around the throne walks up to John and says, John, do not weep, look. He looks and he answers the question that the mighty angel asked. He looks at John and says, the one that is worthy to open this is the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered and he is able to open up the scroll. Now, why is Jesus the one worthy to open up the scroll? The reason is Jesus has done things that no one else has ever done and no one else is able to do. Jesus is worthy because he came down to earth was tempted by money and women and power and never succumbed to those things. Jesus is worthy because he faced sin and death, died on the cross and conquered those things. And he did it all for a bunch of people who didn't deserve it. That's why Jesus is the one worthy to hold the future, the one worthy to hold the document that is gonna play out the, the end of mankind and the rebirth of the universe. He's the only one that is worthy to hold this scroll. And they call him the lion and the root. Now, where does that come from? In Genesis 49, it gives a prophecy that the Savior, Jesus, will come from the bloodline of a guy named Judah, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament revolves around these 12 tribes of Israel. Israel's name was formerly Jacob, which means deceiver, right? He was a liar, and that's the line that Jesus came from. The other person, the root of Jesse or the root of David, David was the son of a guy named Jesse. If you don't know anything about King David, most people have heard a little bit about King David, the guy that killed the giant, right? It's fascinating. King David was a man after God's own heart, but not a perfect man by any stretch. Here's a fun fact about King David. I was thinking about this last week. When King David was running for his life, when Saul was trying to kill him and he was hiding in caves and he was kind of this misfit outcast guy, right? That's when he was the closest to God. That's when he wrote Psalms or the majority of the book of Psalms, right? He's running for his life. That's why he wrote so many things about overcoming and victory and God's help and provision because he needed God. He was desperate for God. You know when King David messed up? When he became king. When he had all the comforts in life that's when he looked out over the rooftops, saw a naked woman bathing, slept with her, got her pregnant, and then killed her husband. 
Isn't that like humanity, right? When we're broke, God, when we have everything, we kind of forget about God, don't we? And we kind of do what we want to do, right? King David did that. It's interesting, though. Jesus chose a bloodline that was extremely imperfect, and that shows us that we have hope because you and I are imperfect. God can even do something with someone like me, right? Even someone like you, even someone who's made big mistakes, that God can forgive us and still use us and do something amazing, right? Okay. So then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the lion and the lamb, Earlier, John had heard about a lion, right? The lion from the tribe of Judah. So when he turned around, he would have expected to see a lion or an image of a lion. And instead he saw one like a slaughtered lamb in the middle of the throne where the living creatures were. Those are the angels that are flying around and the 24 elders. There looks something like a slaughtered lamb. Now this lamb had been sacrificed, but was alive, now, let me tell you a misconception we have about Jesus in the Bible. Whenever we talk about Jesus as being the lamb, I do this too, or at least I used to before I really studied it. We think of Jesus like this symbolism of like these cute, cuddly, like petting zoo type lambs. You know what I'm talking about? Where you go and you want to like bottle feed them and just like pet them. I don't know if anyone else has wanted to bottle feed a lamb besides me. But anyways, you want to hold the lamb and just kind of cuddle it. Like one of the... That's not how the Bible portrays Jesus. The Bible portrays Jesus more like a ram these huge, mature horns that were on him. And if you get in front of a ram and it hits you, it's gonna knock you down. They can defend themselves. They're pretty powerful little animals. We actually see in the Old Testament when a sacrifice was needed, when a father was about to kill his son, God provided a ram, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So we have this misconception. Rams, mature, powerful rams, had these huge horns, right? Just like the picture that's in the background here. Now, when he looked at Jesus... Jesus had seven horns, not literally seven horns. He didn't literally have seven eyes. The seven horns represent not just power, like a ram has power, but perfect power. Remember, seven represents perfection. He also had seven eyes, not literally. It means that he had perfect insight. Jesus could see all and he knew all. And he was a slaughtered lamb. He had been killed, but risen from the grave. Now the eyes are the seven spirits of God. The spirit of God had been characterized in the last chapter by these fiery torches in front of the throne. Now we see the Holy Spirit characterized as these eyes on Jesus. Now look at this picture. I come from a denomination that does not believe in what's called the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, Spirit. They're called oneness Pentecostals. That's bad theology and I'm not trying to be mean. In chapter five of Revelation, we see the Trinity. You have the Father sitting on the throne, the Son taking the scroll from his hand, and the Holy Spirit characterized in these torches and in these eyes. We see that there. Now, if you've never heard the word Trinity before, it's very complex. It means tri-unity. We worship one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one. But he is manifested in three persons. 
Now, does that make sense to our simple, finite mind? Absolutely not. But that's what God is. He's incomprehensible. He's more complicated than we give him credit for. Well, I can explain the Trinity, Corey. It's like an egg. It's not like an egg. God's not like an egg, right? He's more complicated than an egg. It's a little bit deeper than that. But the Holy Trinity is not something we should be distraught about or upset about. We're to be in awe and fascination. And one day God will explain it to us, but it's not right now. And that's okay. He's incomprehensible, and that's perfectly fine. So the lamb, which is Jesus Christ, comes up to God the Father, and he takes the scroll. The only person worthy to take the scroll is God's son. Now remember, this is the scroll that's going to unleash judgment, and it's going to unleash rewards to those who have loved God. It contains the revelation. It contains what we're about to start studying. So as he starts to pan out again, He sees the 24 elders and they start to worship him at the sight of Jesus taking the throne because the elders know that the future is in good hands. They know that the the, the things that are to come, they're in the hands of Jesus and they are secure. It's going to be okay. And it says that they have harps and they have golden bowls of incense. This may be literal and it may not be literal. It really doesn't matter. But what the gold incense and and all that represents and what the harps represent is it represents our praise and our prayers. So when you pray and when you praise God, when you worship God, the elders in heaven take these prayers and take this praise and they distribute it. They, They lay it down before God. The harps may be a literal thing because we're gonna cover a couple of songs here in a second. They're actually playing music In heaven, they're singing these new songs. So maybe the harps are literal. Maybe they are literally playing instruments and worshiping God, okay? Last part. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you are slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and they worshiped. Now, last week, if you were here, there's a song in chapter four, it's very short, and we call it the creation song from the elders. In chapter five, we get another new song, and they call it the redemption song from the elders because Jesus takes the scroll, and they know that humanity is going to be redeemed. So they sing a song, the redemption song from the elders. The first line of this song answers the first question of this chapter. Who is worthy to take the scroll? Jesus is worthy because he purchased people by his blood for God. He's worthy to hold the future because he's the only one that has died for humanity 
rose from the grave and has purchased their salvation. Now, whose salvation did he purchase? Anyone who will accept him. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all people on earth are sought out by God. So the song that the elders sang anticipated the great commission. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says, go out to the entire globe, right? Go out to the entire earth, baptize, disciple, and teach. So when they sing, they're singing about a time when all kinds of people on planet earth have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and they have given their life to him. This is why, because God reaches out to all kinds of people. This is why prejudice and racism has no place in Christianity. No place, right? Not even the jokes, not even the insensitivity. It has no place in the kingdom of God. God loves all people. He loves all colors. He loves Canadians, Mexicans. He loves Africans. He loves Europeans. He loves the United States. He loves everybody all over the globe. That's why we need to be very careful how we talk about other people. That's why we need to be very careful how we look at other people and think about other people and the thoughts that creep into our mind. If you wanna break down the walls of racism and prejudice, ask people questions. Get to know people differently from you. Get to know them, because there is no place for racism and prejudice in the church. Absolutely not. And so 1 Peter 2.9, kind of gives us a little bit of clarity. It says in chapter five of Revelation that he's gonna make us a kingdom. He's gonna make us priests. Peter writes that when we become Christians, we become a royal priesthood. We're called out of darkness, we're called into marvelous light, and when we're adopted by the king, we become subjects of the king. We become part of the royal family. This means that serving God should not be an obligation. When we're kingdom-minded, we put the kingdom above our own self as individuals. It's not about advancing Corey Trimble. It's about advancing the kingdom of God. It's not about advancing the experienced community church. It's about advancing the kingdom of God. And when we become true Christians, we put the kingdom above ourselves, and we don't see that as an obligation. We see that as an honor. We see that as something that we get to do, and we should be privileged to do it. It also says that we will reign on earth. I'm not going to unpack this yet. We see this way towards the end of Revelation, in chapter 21 and 22, our reign on earth. What we need to know at this point, though, in chapter 5 is this. God not only intends to save us, he intends to hang out with us. God doesn't save humanity just so we can all get to heaven and, like, dig ditches for him all the time, right? Oh, man, glad I'm in heaven, right? Like shoveling, you know, whatever the dirt looks like up there. That's not what God intends. God intends to spend time with us. It says in Revelation that we'll get to sit on the throne with him, right? I don't know if that means literal or figuratively. The, the, the book of Revelation also talks about a banquet. We're gonna eat with him. We're gonna fellowship with him. That's why communion is such a big deal when we take it. It's kind of a foreshadow of the communion we're gonna have with him in heaven, right? Remembering what we've been redeemed from and celebrating and laughing I get this image of God walking around with our, his arms around us and joking with us and talking. He loves us. We've been called the friends of God, right? That's what we're called. We're brothers and sisters. We're heirs to the throne with Christ. God doesn't just want to save us. He wants to be with us. He wants to commune with us. He wants to hang out with us. So here's, here's what's neat. 
At the beginning of this chapter, we were so zoomed in that we could see God holding a scroll. Now, here's what John does, right? Imagine that, real zoomed in. Now John's going to start coming way out. John's perspective comes way out, and it says that he heard the voices of many angels, and the number was countless. There were so many angels that no human could ever count them. Now, listen. In the Greek language, the largest number that Greeks could express in John's time was 10,000. That was the biggest number they could express, right? We have numbers now that we can express that are 100 zeros plus a one, right? So we have these huge numbers that we can express now. They couldn't express those numbers back then. So the number of angels that John was talking about was a sea of angels so big, so vast, so incalculable, no one could ever come up with the number for it. Now, let me tell you something on the flip side of that. You're going to think I'm a charismatic nut, but I just don't care anymore. So in the Bible, it says that one-third of heaven was swept away by Satan. They, those, those are demons. That is what has become demons. If there's so many angels in heaven right now that you can't even calculate it, how much demonic influence is in the world right now? Think about that. Well, Corey, I don't know if I believe in that. If you're a Christian, you should. We fight not against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities, against spiritual darkness. What is that spiritual darkness? It's fallen angels from heaven. If one-third of this incalculable number came down are now demonic, there's a huge war that is being waged against us, and we need to know this. That's why you need to protect your mind. That's why you need to pray. That's why you need to pray over your kids. That's why you need to pray over your home. That's why you need to be careful what kind of movies you watch and music you listen to and the things that you read and take part in because there is a demonic influence in this world and it's working all kinds of angles to get to us, right? Something to keep in mind. So it says that Jesus Christ, they're worshiping him and they say, worthy is the one who is slaughtered or worthy is the one who has been slain. He's worthy to receive power, which means all power comes from God and it comes right back to him. He's worthy to receive all riches. That means that God doesn't need anything. He owns everything. He created the universe. He has all riches, right? He's worthy to receive wisdom. God is omniscient. He knows all, sees all. Nothing's outside of his, his, his knowledge. Worthy to receive strength. God is capable of all. He's worthy to receive honor, which means respect. He's also worthy to receive glory. We talked about this word glory last week. Glory means praising someone for who they are, not what they've done, but who they are. God, you're good, you're perfect, you're all-knowing, you're majestic, you're wise, you're the creator. It's praising him for who he is, not what he has done. And God is worthy of all these things. So John continues to pan out, and he goes to an extreme pan out. Now think about so many angels, no one could even count the number. And then John goes out even further, and we see the future right here. Everyone who has ever given their life to God, every creature that has ever given their life to God is worshiping in this song, celebrating with the angels, the elders, the creatures flying around the throne, Christ taking the scroll. You have everything. And John pans back and think how big this scene is. Billions and billions and billions and billions, and who knows what the number is, amount of people added in with the angels, and they are all simultaneously worshiping God in heaven. So this is a, there's this odd chronological order that happens in this worship scene. You have the angels that were created eons ago, long before we can even comprehend. You have all the people celebrating 
at the Lamb, all the people who've become Christians after Jesus Christ was crucified, and then you have the countless people in the future that are going to come to know him, so many that we don't even know the number. And they sing what is typically called the song from the universe, because the whole universe, everyone that acknowledges God as the Savior, the whole universe is singing to him, worshiping the one that sits on the throne, the song of the universe. And at the end of this song, it says these four living creatures that are flying around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. That's chapter four, right? Holy, holy, holy. It says that they affirm Jesus taking the scroll and they say, amen. We say amen a lot in church, and at least some of us do. We say amen a lot in church, and we don't often know what it means. It simply means let it be so. So if I say something and you agree with that, you say amen, that means let it be. Let it be so. That's right. So the elders fall on their faces and praising God for the security that Jesus is going to give because they know that the future is secure. Listen to me for a second. The future is secure because Christ is in control. They praise him because they know no matter how hard it gets, no matter what, what humanity goes through, no matter the, the, the hell and high water that we have to face, Jesus holds the scroll, he holds the future, it's going to be okay. Now, I'm going to go somewhere with this. And please, you got to bear with me here. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, just hear me out for a second. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, we know that there is only one worth trusting our future with. Because Jesus came down. I don't know if you know this. The Bible says that everything was created through Jesus for Jesus. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God said, let there be light, that was Jesus. It's the same thing. God is one, right? God has always been there. He's always existed. He's always been a part of the triune God. Everything was created through him, for him. Jesus Christ came to leave the celestial area, right, heavens, came down to earth and became one of us. Suffered, was spat upon, lived a poor, humble lifestyle, and was eventually nailed to a hunk of wood for nine hours until he bled to death. That's what God did. And he rose from the grave. He came back, and we didn't do anything to deserve that. The only one worthy of, of holding our security, the only one worthy of our putting our life in his hands is the one that gave his life for us. Who else has ever done anything like this for you? Well, Corey, I had an uncle that died for me one time, but did he rise from the grave? Did he purchase the salvation of mankind when he did so? Even when mankind is at his best or her best, there's nothing we can do that compares to what Christ has done for us. No one has ever done anything like this for us or ever will. So if you agree with me on this, here's the bait and switch. Why in the world do we put on our trust in lesser things than Christ? We put our trust in drugs. Put our trust in sex and sexuality. Put our trust in our marriage. Put our trust in sports. Put our trust in entertainment and fame and fortune and success. Put our, put our trust in all of these things to bring us contentment and joy and happiness. And what it's made Christianity is it's made us quite lazy. Let me let you into an insider secret. Do you know why we announce things for four Sundays or four, four weekends in a row? If we do an event, do you know why we announce it at least four times in service? 
because the average Christian comes to church once a month. We have to tell you guys something four times in the hopes that you'll hear it one time because it's travel baseball season, because there's a game on, because there's a concert, because there's camping, because I'm just too tired, whatever it may be. And we keep creating excuse after excuse after excuse to not be fully faithful to this. Well, Corey, I don't know if you have to go to church to be a good Christian. I would tell you that the Bible tells you the exact opposite. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it says go to church more the closer Jesus' return gets here. And we keep going to church less. Let me let you in on another thing about me. I've grown to almost hate our live stream. You know why? Because it's easier to sit at home and not get your family out of the house. It's easier just to watch me on TV. I know that probably just offended somebody. The live stream is not, not there to take the place of community. It's there in case you're out of town. It's there in case you're too sick to make it that you can still watch the sermon. It's not to give you an excuse to sit at home at your butt and not take your kids to get discipled. It's not an excuse for to skip out on community. It's not an excuse not to participate. It's a supplement. And what we've become is entitled and unfaithful. And people sit back and they're like, well, I just don't like the temperature in this room. <laughs> too many lights, not enough lights, too big of a stage, too many people. He's wearing a t-shirt, <laughs> right? We've treated church like we're at a wine tasting convention. I don't know. I'll just go to the one down the street, right? We don't want pastors. We want motivational speakers that turn a blind eye when we do things that are wrong. We don't want to be called out on our sin. We don't want to grow and improve. We want to tote this line. We want to walk this fence. I want my cake and I want to eat it too, right? I'm telling you guys, and I'm not saying this to scare you, but this line that we walk is not going to exist forever. This plane both sides is not going to be able to happen forever. One day God's gonna call us to the carpet. And I wonder, what will it take? What will it take to get us to wake up? What will it take to make God and church a priority? What will it take? I've seen people miraculously healed of cancer. I've seen people be in comas comas. There was a man several years ago who was in a coma from a stroke. We prayed for him. He woke up a couple of days later, completely healed, ended up turning his back, not only on God, leaving his family. We say, whoa, man, I've done it in my life. God's done miraculous things for me and I've been unfaithful. What does it take to finally jar us? As we get into Revelation, we're going to learn what it takes. God's going to have to shake the entire earth. And you know what's fascinating? People still won't respond. The children of Israel are walking through the desert. They see food fall from heaven. They see Moses hit a rock and water comes out. They see the Red Sea split and they walk across on dry land. The man of God goes up on a mountain for a couple of days. They get all their jewelry together and make a golden calf. We laugh at that, but we do it too. God saves our marriage and then right when he saves it, we go back to our apathetic life. And everything else becomes a priority. But Corey, I love travel baseball. Let me, let me tell you something. I love baseball too. From St. Louis, man, it's a baseball town. Travel baseball is not going to save your kids' souls. Listen, I got nothing against your kids playing sports, 
But if you don't teach your kids the word of God, you're doing them the biggest injustice you can ever do for your kids. It's not Patrick's job to teach your kids the word of God. It's your job to teach your kids the word of God. Fathers, it's your job to pray with your kids. But we're so distracted and we're so lazy and we're so narcissistic and church has become way too comfortable. I'll just sit back on the couch today. But we never miss the gym. But we never miss going to work. We never miss that concert. We never miss that party. We never miss a game. But I'll get to church once a month. But I'll dedicate a little bit, right? What is it gonna take to jar us and shake us and show us that Christ has to be a priority in our life? Is it gonna take your wife walking out? Is it gonna take your kids being addicted to porn? Is it gonna take another person getting high and running off an embankment and dying? I get a kick out of all these people, legalized smoking marijuana. You know what led me to cocaine abuse? Smoking a joint that was laced by it. I had a friend named Michael that was going 100 miles per hour down the wrong way on I-24 after smoking a joint and ran into an embankment, dead as a doornail. Yeah, let's legalize that, sounds smart. Sounds like a good idea. Let's just keep pushing society further and further towards clarity, further away from, from sobriety. Let's do that. We are so selfish, and unfortunately, it has absolutely penetrated the church. Absolutely penetrated the church. Here's what we miss. We put all of our hope in all these lesser things, failing to learn, failing to study, failing to know that God has something better for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says he has a plan for you, not a plan for your destruction, not a plan for bad things. God has a great plan for you, for your prosperity, for your wellness, for your goodness. He has all power to implement this plan. He's capable of saving us. Here's another thing that I hate about modern day Christianity. We use this terminology, well, we're all sinners. There's nothing we can do to be saved. That's a lie. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, but when Jesus bangs on the door and knocks, the implication is, is we have to let him in. Jesus has already purchased salvation. It's free. He bought it with his blood. It's wrapped up. It's got a beautiful ribbon on it. It's beautiful. It's there. It's waiting, but we have to get out of our seats and take it. But we're so lazy and we're so entitled. Well, God, you should bring that over here to me. God owes you nothing. The church owes you nothing, nothing. God has already bought our salvation with his blood, but we have to accept the gift. We have to realize that if we put God first, the words of Jesus, if we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be taken care of. Even if all hell comes against us, we know that we have an eternity that is secure with him. But church is a 25% thing. In a good month, maybe it's, you know how many people we have on our roster at this church that we have information for? We have about 35, 4,000 people that come to this church. We have 18,000 people in our database. You ever hear those churches who are like, we have 20,000 members, but only 2,000 come to church. We have 18,000 members. We get about 35 to 4,000 that come a fourth, a quarter. 
Because there's just something else going on. Oh, Corey, we wanted to go camping. We wanted to go to this game. We wanted to go to this. Okay. All right. When are we going to wake up, guys? God has purchased your contentment. He has purchased your hope and your freedom. He has purchased your salvation. It was bought by his son's blood. He knocks on the door. He punches. He slams. He bangs on the door, waiting for us to open up and let him in. Is there something you can do? Yes. You can accept the free gift. And until you do, contentment will always be elusive. Until you do, marriages will continue to break down. Until you do, children will still walk away from Christ when they go to college 75% of the time. Until we do, the church will continue to shrink. The largest growing population in the United States are called nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. They believe in nothing. Largest growing population in the country right now. Until we start to take this seriously, you're not going to see a change in your society. Until you start taking this seriously, you're not going to see a change in your family or yourself. I don't say this because I'm a jerk. I don't say this because I don't love you. I say this because I stay up late at night thinking about you. I say this because I, I lose sleep because I think of people that I've prayed for and I've seen God restore them only to see them walk away. And it's bigger than your marriage. It's bigger than your relationship with your children. It is your eternity, your eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. And there's going to come a time where God's going to be through with games. Would you bow your, no, please, please. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, guys, there have been seasons in my life where the only reason I've been consistent to church is because it's been my job. There are times when I don't want to be here. There are times when I'd rather be doing other things. There are times when I don't feel it. But that's why the Bible says we don't just worship him with our heart. We worship him with our mind as well. We have to know what's best for us. We have to know that this has to be a priority. If you're in this room and you're struggling, man, maybe you have not been faithful. Maybe you have some sin you need to confess and get off your chest. There's men and women up here at the front. Please let them pray for you. I mean, just, just come up here and, and just, if, if you want someone to just put a hand on your shoulder or hold your hand and just, please, please take the time to lean on some people. If you're in here and you're either not a believer, maybe you got questions, or maybe you're a brand new believer but you don't know what to do next, Dave is up here to my right, your left. He's wearing the plaid shirt. Come up here and talk to Dave. He doesn't know everything, but he knows a lot. And he may be able to point you in the right direction. He may be able to give you a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of insight, and help you to your next step. Come talk to Dave. Here's the last thing, guys. 
There's communion all the way around us. I say this every week. Guys, this is not a, a, a small matter. This is a big matter. We have this bread and this juice that represents the body and blood of Jesus, the only one worthy to hold your future, the only one capable of true contentment and joy and salvation. That communion reminds us that God gave his only son to purchase us to free us, to help us. Take a couple of minutes, guys. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Take the communion and just think about it for a second. Ponder it for a second. Meditate on it. Let it soak in. That just as the song says, we're no longer slaves of fear. We're children of God. He gave everything for us. We need to wake up. God, I love you. God, I love these people. I love these people. God, I love these people more than anything. I love them so much. Father, I have fallen asleep. God, wake me up, Father. Lord, let us give everything to you if we will just put you first, God. Lord, you'll, you'll, you'll make everything work out. Nothing wrong with sports or concerts or shows. Nothing wrong with that, God. But Lord, let you be the first priority in our life, God. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters, God. Help them. Strengthen them. Encourage them, Lord. Be with them as they go through hard times, God. Lord, let us please put you first in our lives. We love you. We thank you, God. We praise you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I love you so much. You're welcome to help yourself.